everyone. Welcome to the first episode of 2021 of Certified Forgotten, your only review podcast that deals with horror films that have five or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. It's kind of our deal. I feel like maybe you've got that figured out by now. Yeah, you're good. You got it. Uh, this is the first podcast of 2021. We are going to start the year off with a very gross bang, and we're going to get to that in a little bit of a minute. But uh, I want to check in with, with my buddy, with my pal right now, who had a hard day on the Twitter. Donato, how you doing, friend? I'm doing fine. You know, New Year, same me. You know, Donato's just out there reviewing horror films and picking fights with distributors. So that's, I mean, that's like, you know, that's your, that's your deal, right? That's always been your deal. It wasn't even a distributor. It was the official Twitter handle of a movie. But uh, we don't need to get into that bullshit because it'll stay on Twitter where all the worst things in the world happen mostly. Yes, but the good news is if you blinked, you missed it because that is how all Twitter drama works. So it is in the ether now and we're ready to talk about a, a, a different film. And the odds of you getting yelled at by the official Twitter account for this film are pretty low because there isn't one. So you're good. The movie in question has a special guest, doesn't it, today? It does. That is usually how this podcast works. So uh, you know what? I'd, lo- I'd love it if you'd introduce our guest. I will get to that right now. On the podcast today, we bring to the people freelance writer who you have read their work on Blade Disgusting, Dread Central, the internet at large, Twitter. Welcome, Ari Drew. Ari, thank you for thank you for being here and bringing the Poughkeepsie tapes. Hey guys, thanks for having me, and I apologize. Uh, well, I guess retroactively apologize for uh, subjecting you to this. Subjecting is a strong word. I I don't think I well uh, we'll 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 get into it. But let's just say that you when you joined when you came onto the the recording just now you were like oh guys I'm really glad I'm doing this I need to unwind and both Anato and I were like with the Poughkeepsie tapes so that's a little taste of the kind of conversation I think we're going to have. Considering this a, dep- a decompression film is like a Donato statement, so the fact that you said this I'm I'm feeling much better about that. <laughs> yeah, um, I guess that says a lot about the day I need to, uh, from which I need to decompress. So uh, we'll definitely get, we'll definitely get into that for sure. That's fun. Uh, so Ari, let's uh, let's kind of talk as we always do on the podcast. Let's talk about you. Uh, you know, you are you have such an interesting career. I want to I want to talk about that a little bit and kind of about like what your career brings to your perspective on the on the horror genre. But let's back all the way up and kind of talk about the early days of, of you and horror. You know, when you were first getting into film, whatever age you found yourself kind of being drawn towards movies, when you discovered that there were these like creepy, gross, maybe movies that you were particularly into, you know, what was your first exposures to the genre? And when did you start thinking about like, oh, this is a different type of movie and I think I like it? Yeah, I think there have been um, a few different stories that I've recounted about this um I, I actually wrote a piece on bloody a few years back and it was um something like the eight films that shaped me as a horror fan um so i talked a little bit about it there but um but you know like like anything else when we talk about our childhood you know our memories shift a little bit here and there um i would say i guess that my first memorable encounter with horror is probably horror adjacent maybe something like michael jackson's thriller music video which made me terrified as a child i actually cried we used to have like a tape with um the making of the music video i think that was directed by john landis correct correct um yeah so that fucking terrified me (laughs) i mean as a kid but it was something that i could never get through the actual video like i could maybe watch half of the video 
even seeing the behind the scenes stuff on the tape, there was like, they show you how they do the makeup. They show you those aren't his real eyes, you know, the things like that. Um, didn't work for me. I was still pretty terrified. So um, it kind of became a challenge a little bit to try to see how much more of it I could watch. Um, another thing I would watch around the time it is one of my favorite movies ever. It's Beetlejuice. So for being one of my favorite films, I actually watched that movie. Oh God, maybe like seven or eight times before actually watching it all the way through. I would always stop at the, um, like the whole exorcism scene at the end where they're basically exercising, uh, Barbara and Adam's spirits and they're, you know, they turn into these dying zombie looking creatures and, that made me, I, I don't know if maybe it's because I had such an emotional attachment to those characters because I watched that movie so much, but that also terrified me and it was hard for me to watch. Um, but again, it was one of those things that the more I challenged myself, like the more I tried to watch more of it, the braver I got. And I was like, okay, I can do this shit. And finally I watched it. I'm like, that wasn't so bad. That's a great movie. Um, and funny story with that, we actually used to rent that movie so much from the video store in the town I grew up in in, in Northwest Texas that the lady who ran it just gave me the tape. So we still have that tape at home of Beetlejuice. It's just like a rented copy. There's no slip cover. It's just a loose ass tape of Beetlejuice at home. See, that's interesting to me because I feel like we had the same start at a young age where we were both petrified and scared of things, but that turned me off to horror for a long time where your bravery Mm. kicked in quite early and you're like, your brain was immediately able to go, all right, I need to watch this to understand it. So I stopped being afraid of it. My childhood brain was like, nope, fuck off. I'm not watching this forever. And like, it took me literally, as I've discussed before on the podcast until high school and college, even to get that bravery. So it's it's really interesting to hear that like your kind of fight or flight kicked in very early and you're like, no, I'm going to fight this. Yeah. And I was really young. I mean, I, I watched that kind of stuff. I was maybe like three years old. I was really, so some relevant background, I guess. My parents were separated for a lot of my younger childhood. This is not as serious of a, of a background story as it sounds with that. But um, basically, I would, sp- I would split time with my dad and my mom. And my dad was very much about loose supervision. So he would take us to the video store. We had a, um, a video store called Video Express where you can rent five movies for $5 for five days. And so that's how he would keep my brothers and I busy. So we would go and we could rent whatever we wanted. And since you didn't actually have to like show them the cover of the of the VHS to rent it. You just pull it from behind and there's like, you know, two or three copies of each movie. I would get away with renting some fucking wild shit. Like for a kid. I rented like uh Demons and Demons 2 when I was maybe like four years wow. old. Um so those are some of the early horror horror movies I saw. I did catch like um some older universal stuff on like uh, TNT. TNT used to have like Monster Vision, so they show a lot of horror films, and I would watch that with my grandpa when I would stay with him. So stuff like um Todd Browning's Dracula and things like that. And uh and I really love like creature movies like uh, Critters and Gremlins and Ghoulies is one of my favorite franchises that like I always want to talk about. And if there was a way to do that for me all the time, I would do it. Um but yeah, that was the kind of stuff I grew up on. But I again, it was just like pick of the draw. I, I was listening to Brad McCarg's episode and this idea of like, and I think this is pretty common, but like picking a film based on the craziness of the cover, based on how spooky the cover looked, based on how, you know, just intriguing and attractive the cover looked because horror films had the coolest cover art. Uh, yeah, I would just do that. And I and I ended up a couple of times with like some trauma films, some really bizarre shit. So yeah, I, would, I think I got desensitized pretty quickly once I got over the initial hump of being 
terrified of Michael Jackson as a werewolf. Yeah, but God bless you turning out the way you did for discovering trauma <laughs> films at the age of four or five. <laughs> it actually probably explains a little. Actually, a this lot is all this is clear now. This all makes more sense. Well, let me let me ask. All right, because you were talking about kind of like the family element there. Was was horror for you something that you connected you to your brothers, to your dad, to your grandfather? Is it something you guys would do together? Or was it something you kind of like for you, it was the I'm escaping the rest of my family. I'm doing my own thing. I'm getting sucked into my own world. Yeah, I think it was probably more of the latter, more of just doing my own thing, uh, because I found that I was really, really drawn to it. I would make my brothers watch all these horror movies with me for the most part. But yeah, my dad just kind of did that to keep us busy. Um, my grandpa and I did used to watch a lot of these this older films together. So even stuff like uh, Godzilla, like old Godzilla films and King Kong and um, I'm trying to think of some other things. He's, you know, a lot of the stuff I watched with him was definitely a lot tamer than what I was allowed to watch when I stayed with my dad. But um, my younger brother, probably more than my older brother, I would just force him to watch all this shit. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, dude, you got to watch this. It's really scary. And of course, he would cry half the time and have nightmares and I'd get in trouble. So... That was the whole thing. But to this day, actually, my both of my brothers, you know, whenever we go home for holidays or something, they will, like, let me just put on whatever. And usually it's a horror movie, and I'm usually introducing them to something. Especially my older brother now. He humors me, but he, like, he just does it. He goes along with it. He watches whatever I put on. So that's kind of how it always was with my family. It was, like, my thing, and that was for them to respect me and my individuality. They used to have to sit through, like, a shit ton of horror films and take me to a bunch of them. Uh, rated R horror films when I was, you know, not 17. Well, speaking about kind of like that, the high school experience too. I mean, you, you've written for a very long time um, about the horror genre. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when did you start putting metaphorical pen to paper and say like, not only am I watching this stuff, not only am I ingesting it, but like, I feel like I have something to say about it. And maybe there's a, a place for me to kind of like give voice to my own thoughts about these movies. Is that something you started doing? You know, Donato's talked in past episodes about, like, you know, kind of keeping like journals and stuff. Were you doing it just for yourself or did you immediately kind of start writing for friends, start writing for family, do like those early email newsletters and stuff, you know, stuff, things like that? Yeah, for me, um, I actually had a couple of projects when I was in uh, middle school that were because um, I was in like a newspaper class and some other stuff uh, like English classes where we did creative little um, mini publications. So I created an entertainment magazine once. I think it was like in seventh or eighth grade where I reviewed a bunch of films that were out that December. I'm trying to think of what year that was. It was probably 98, whenever the faculty came out. It came out in December. I remember that came out, I think, in 98. Correct me if I'm wrong somewhere. Yeah, that was one of the ones that I reviewed in there. And, I, and it ended up that I was reviewing all of these things that I just liked. It wasn't even like any of the major you know, blockbuster films that had come out during Christmas. Um, but I wrote little reviews. I wrote a couple of articles in there just, you know, short little things, a couple of paragraphs. And, um, and that was really, really fun. I used to devour Entertainment Weekly. And uh, Us Magazine at the time was not a tabloid. It was like an actual monthly, you know, publication. They had some reviews and interviews. So that's the kind of stuff I just really ate up. And I always liked writing. I wrote a, you know, like a, a short fiction story for, uh, for a class project in fifth grade. And it was about like my friends and I getting trapped on an island with these monsters and I just always had fun just kind of mapping out stories just because I really liked, you know, watching. I was really into like character driven horror by that time. I, I loved, you know, slashers. I love the Scream franchise. It's my favorite horror franchise. Um, so I was really into kind of getting to know these different characters. And usually they're like kind of like, you know, archetypal characters. And 
you know, having crazy shit happen to them and writing like a chase scene or a death scene or something. So actually, when I was young, I, I really liked the creative side of it and the fiction side of it. But yeah, because I consume so many, you know, magazines and newspapers and whatnot with reviews. I love the idea of like writing about what I thought of a movie and mostly writing, writing about things that I like to write about. I know that can get like, I mean, I've heard Matt or Donato get shit on for, for not giving bad reviews or, you know, with these little jabs and whatnot, but that's kind of what I really, why I wanted to do this kind of stuff. I didn't want to necessarily just use it as a platform to air out all my grievances with movies. It's really just, I wanted to be able to support things that I liked and, hoped that maybe, you know, as I got older, hoped that I, I could actually do it a little bit more. Um, I never thought that it would be a career or anything. I just always thought it would be a hobby I could do. And it kind of, and it kind of has worked out that way. So um, for all that it's worth, I have a very different career path, but I still do try to find time to, you know, be able to talk about film and be really engaged in, and, you know, with horror fans, especially just because it's my favorite genre. Mm -hmm. I think it's important what you mentioned earlier about having that kind of newspaper class or club, whatever you were involved in, in that sense, where you were given an outlet to kind of pursue something that you were passionate about at a younger age. I can't think of in my high school, middle or sorry, my middle school specific, uh, specifically, something like that. I don't think there was an option to be part of a newspaper club or something, a journalism club. So just having that opportunity, I think, is so important because in my upbringing, I didn't like to write at all, which is insane because of the work I do now and what I put myself through would make you think, oh, like Donato's always loved writing. No, I, I hated writing for a very long time because it was about topics I didn't care about. So the idea of letting younger children explore things they actually are excited about versus forcing them to write via a structure I, I, there's something so important to that, you know, I think just based on what you said, there's something so important about exploring and realizing and finding that creative balance at a younger age that lets you dive headfirst versus me stumbling backwards into, oh, wait, I like this stuff. Wow. What if I liked it a decade earlier? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something for me, too, that like early on I recognized and this became a big problem Um you know, writing reviews and writing, covering films. And especially when you're on deadline, I mean, you, you guys know about festival deadlines and stuff like having to turn out reviews same night after a midnight screening, you know, things like that. It gets pretty crazy. I, it takes forever for me to write and it always has taken forever for me to write. And I, you know, edit the shit out of things and I reread paragraphs a hundred times before I move on from them. And it, it just like, I'm always surprised that I was able to write as much as I did write whenever I was pretty actively writing for um, Bloody Disgusting or Dread Central because I write so, so slowly and it kind of lends itself more to the fiction stuff, which is, again, I gravitate towards that a little more these days in my free time. But um, but yeah, that was during, I remember like there were like little articles I'd have to write in this, you know, in this newspaper class and it just took me for fucking ever to do it. And I'm just not very good. I still am not good at that to this day. Well, let me ask about that because you mentioned writing for Dread and Bloody. Um, you know, obviously you are part of the Austin film scene. You know, I see you at at uh, press screenings for stuff. I see you at um, a bunch of the different festivals around here. You're, you know, that's a, a cool little community with a lot of different people that's very genre focused here in Austin, Texas. Um, but, you know, when did you start to, when did you first realize that there was online communities of writers that were like you, that people that kind of shared your interests and that you felt yourself kind of getting to know some people, getting to know some sites, getting to know editors and things like that. When did, when did you um, 
find kind of like your online home for writing and realize that there were these this weird diaspora of horror fans that that maybe you wanted to uh, you know, work with and collaborate with in the future. So I went to Fantastic Fest for the first time, I want to say five years ago, uh, maybe 2015, maybe 2016. But um, at that time, I wasn't I wasn't writing. I was kind of like toying with the idea of trying to write for a site or trying to do something with respect to horror, whether it was writing something creatively or starting up, you know, a writing team with someone or something like that. And I went to Fantastic Fest. Um, I want to say the first year I didn't cover. No, maybe I did. Maybe the, I think the only reason I went actually is because like the week before I happened to connect with um, the, the previous um, editor-in-chief at Dread and asked, hey, I live in Austin. Can I cover this? And got press credentials pretty quickly um, because they needed someone to cover it. So I actually think that it, that's what happened. So at that time too, I was kind of like feeling feeling the environment and trying to my husband uh, he is Trey Sermon he writes for Bloody Disgusting and he has a podcast uh, on the Bloody Network and whatnot so um, at the time we were both writing um, for sites and he's a little more extroverted than I am so I was just trying to watch what I needed to watch get what I needed to get done um, you know I, I wasn't really into the whole networking thing as much it was just odd because I actually worked in events before I was writing and that that was kind of the tail end of that career move but i had met a couple of people that year and it wasn't i don't think until like south by southwest the following spring or even um, fantastic fest the next fall when i covered again that i really started like appreciating the idea of okay like these people here aren't here to like take work away from me <laughs> i don't need to be in competition with them i don't need to worry about you know necessarily any of them trying to like I don't know, steal press time from me or something like that. So I, I guess like maybe I went in a little bit protected, but when I recognize how many folks at these festivals love genre films and, and particularly love horror and was able to really just kind of get into great drunken conversations at the end of a long day of watching movies with some of them and, and, you know, just have really great talks about things that brought us all there together. I really started to love these festivals for that purpose. And I think Fantastic Fest is probably my favorite one that I've been to just because it's so smaller in scale and, and physically just we're all kind of trapped in the the draft house for, for a whole week and a half. But um, but yeah, I think that did it. I think that was like really an opportunity for me to see like, oh, right, this is like a whole community. And then just writing for longer and meeting more people like you two and a lot of other people that we regularly interact with, I am... Um, I've really valued that. Like these have blossomed to into friendships that are way trans you know they way transcend our love of horror we just these are just people i love now and and it just so happens that we were able to connect via this love of something that's kind of been a big part of our lives for so long it's fun it's funny you mentioned the uh, drunken conversations at fantastic fest because i can specifically remember i think my first year might have been around your first year or i had one more before you and i would always see trace around those parts and then slowly but surely i started seeing you more and more um, and so I, like, I, I totally agree because I went into it not knowing anyone. I went into my first fantastic fest gung ho to do all the work and gung ho to stay, you know, as sober as possible. And it was easy because I didn't know that many people. I, I was there by myself in an Airbnb by myself and I just did my work, went home and, you know, drank a beer or two while I wrote until four in the morning versus three years later when it's just like me and Trace screaming at each other across the highball bar and just like, yeah, no work is getting done that night, but it, it's, it takes a little bit of getting relaxed it takes a little bit of like I, I think it does take trusting your surroundings and trusting the people around you because 
weirdly enough, we all are quote unquote competitors, but it's not the kind of industry. And it's, uh, it's become a lot more fun. As you have said, the, uh, when the guard comes down, you're able just to have those ridiculous nights in the karaoke room at Fantastic Fest. Yeah, I think that's something that's really, um, it kind of taps into the whole, so I identify as a queer, I'm a queer man. Um, growing up as such, automatically, you know, like in Northwest Texas, it's the Bible Belt, it's super conservative. Like I, I have always felt a bit guarded and, and have to like, you know, you kind of have to watch out for yourself and gauge the environment and decide if it's safe or not to be your full self, so to speak. And um, even in that way, like being a horror fan felt very similar where I grew up because again, how much I liked it at a young age, like people looked at me like I was going to be a psycho, like I was gonna be a serial killer or something because I liked watching movies about people dying and terrible creatures coming out and terrorizing people and all that. And there was no way to really explain to people like why I, I really gravitated towards the genre, at least not then. But I think there is something to be said for that kind of like outsider mentality, even for the most extroverted of us. And I can be, and I can be, you know, more comfortable and extroverted, but it's so funny because I think the people that I've connected with the most, we all have like a little bit of social awkwardness to us or, or something there that, that kind of, that we relate on. um, And that somehow we've been able to overcome that with each other, which I think is a bigger testament to this deeper connection. Not to get, you know, philosophical and all that, but. Get philosophical. That's, that's your shit there. Well, you, okay. <laughs> Last question before we talk about the film, and I am going to get you to get a little philosophical here. Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth in terms of what you do. So you work in the mental health industry. Um, you mm-hmm. obviously, as a horror fan, the horror genre has always dealt ranging from really poorly to really well issues of mental health. How do you think that those two careers, both your career as a writer and your career in the mental health industry have kind of informed each other? Do you find you look at horror maybe differently than some other people when you talk to them about films that deal with mental illness? Do you find that you you are able to kind of appreciate them differently, appreciate them more? I, I, I just love a little bit of insight into kind of like how those two things have impacted you. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. Um, I would say that my interest in this field and my work, I, so I'm a, I'm a doctoral trainee right now and I will have a, yeah, I'll be a psychologist when all is said and done. So pretty long journey. I've been doing this for a little, oh, almost four years now, I guess. But um, I, the, when I decided to go back to school, cause I graduated undergrad doing, I was working in music at the time in an event. So my life was very different in 2009 when I moved to Austin from New York, but I gravitated towards this field oddly enough at the same time that I started trying to explore creativity as a, you know, as a hobby and writing more again on my own. Um, and I actually wrote um, a short story that touched on some aspects of mental health, albeit in a really, really clunky way. <laughs> but um, it's kind of like a Clive Barker, Clive Barkery inspired story that um, it basically talked about like uh, repressed trauma pretty much. So really that was just like an interest I just had. Like I've always been fascinated by, you know, what goes on in people's heads, how people deal with difficult things in their life, how people overcome, you know, mental struggles, how people have relationships with each other. And that's also psychology is involved in all of that. So, um, so I think that's why I've always been really attracted to horror movies with really strong characters and really strong relationships. And I love a final girl. I love a really strong, badass woman. That's also another thing. And usually those people are someone who, you know, women that overcome adversity or overcome some 
you know, terrible obstacle and rise up as, you know, more of a badass than, than anything by the end. So that's always been something that as a kid made me drew me to a lot of these movies, especially because I love the slasher subgenre. But in general, I think like there's something really scary about the things that go on inside of our heads um, that scare me a lot more than maybe external horrors. So, um, you know, I, I always tell people like I could I think I could think myself into kind of like an anxious state of fear quicker than any movie could ever do that. And I think that just speaks to the power of the mind um, and where we can take things. And it's weird because I think part of it's the same thing that kept me going back to, you know, trying to finish Beetlejuice and trying to see how much of a, of a spooky scene I could watch before running away. I, I am a little bit of like a, I guess, sensation-seeking <laughs> person. I, I like the idea of like, you know, chasing thrills a little bit. And so that is something that I, it is exhilarating to watch a horror movie um, so maybe it's a little meta in that way. Cause I sometimes look at this, like, and analyze myself a little bit and like, okay, what does this mean that you're, that you're really into this? Like, what does that say about you? And, you know, not to get too much into the weeds, but it's kind of one of those things, like when you're writing and at the same time, you know, going to a class or going to see, um, a patient for therapy, you have to separate those things. Obviously I don't think about horror movies when someone's talking about trauma or something like that. But um, but I do appreciate seeing very realistic experiences reflected in horror movies in ways that are realistically horrific. Um, grief is horrific. Trauma is horrific. You know, depression is horrific. And I think being someone who's dealt with a lot of those things in my life, um, again, I see myself in that. And so I do tend to gravitate more towards films for the most part that are kind of like psychological in nature, that are a little bit heady, that, um, you know, it just, that's kind of what I like. Granted, I can still appreciate like Zombievers or something silly like that. But um, I think that that's kind of how I've connected those things. It it's, speaks a little more to like why I'm drawn to horror, I think, and also just the type of films that I tend to like the most. And I think, Matt, uh, Monocle, you and I talked about this a couple of times. We tend to have tastes that overlap a bit with uh, some of the movies that we really like, and especially that we liked in the last few years. And, and those tend to be like slower burns and kind of like with big payoffs in the end. And, and they deal a lot with dread and really slow builds and kind of psychological elements. So um, so maybe, yeah, maybe if that gives you a little bit of understanding, <laughs> I think that's how it informs it. But again, just professionally speaking, I have to kind of keep that, that part of my life a little bit separate, so to speak, just because... I mean, sometimes I'm like ashamed of some of the, like, I'll watch like a Serbian film and be like, what the fuck? Like if someone, if one of my supervisors knew I watched this, <laughs> what would they think of me? So don't tell them. That's why, uh, that's why we're using my pen. Supervisors right do not listen to this episode. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You and I, you're absolutely right. You and I have very aligned taste. And uh, I, I know that whenever I see you and Trace at a film festival, I'm like, good to see you, Trace. All right, let's talk movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that serves as a really good uh, jumping off point, I think, for, for this episode in particular, because the film that we're about to talk about is going to hit on some of the things that we just brought up. So uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the Poughkeepsie tapes. So stick with us. this the midpoint of the episode where Donato and I like to take a moment and say thank you to our patrons. Um, we really couldn't run the site. We really couldn't run the podcast without your support, but we like to take it a, a step further and actually answer some questions, read some quotes on air. So 
Donato, you have picked two people. They've got something on their minds, and uh, we're going to address it. What's up, man? Sure. I'm going to start with Mr. Luke here, who is going to have me read the following, and I will explain it very briefly afterwards. But in any case, from Luke. <sighs> I, Matt Donato, love Smash Mouth and would never accuse a Patreon member of also liking that band because that would be hurtful. I mean, I, I have owned Smash Mouth CDs in my life. I don't see what the problem here is. We did a Power Hour uh, after a Merry Hour episode, which is my live stream of Perry Nimroff, and the Power Hour was themed on her Patreon, which Luke is also a part of, and Luke's songs were not coming up, and I, I just kept guessing him one after another because I'm like, it has to be one of your songs, it has to be you. So then I was just convinced Smash Mouth was going to be his first one, and I didn't let it go, and now Luke is making me pay for that. Well, it's important that we get on the record with your love of Smash Mouth. It's far past time. They have a few good songs. They have some great fucking songs. There, you put. Look, listen. You you get in a car on a road trip at like hour four with a group of people, and somebody puts on Smash Mouth. You just bought yourself twenty minutes of happiness. I'll give. All right, fine. Twenty minutes is a fair amount. All right. In fact, no more though. No more. I, I no more. Then your ears bleed. In any case, the next Patreon member we have that wants us to read something is a question which we will answer. So, Mr. Corey, you want to know? Who is your favorite horror director, living or dead? Number two, who is your favorite non-horror director? So I'll start with you, Monagle, with the first question. Who is your favorite horror director, living or dead? Uh, I think this one's pretty easy for me. Um, you know, there's a lot of different people that I that I love. You know, it's like music. Whatever album you're listening to at the moment is like your favorite album. But I always go back to Brad Anderson. Um, you know, there's this. There are the classics that people know and love, stuff like Session Nine and The Machinist. But for my money, um, Trans-Siberian is a deeply, deeply underrated psychological thriller. Stonehurst Asylum is a really fun kind of meta horror um, as well. You know, I've liked even the kind of the worst, quote unquote, worst stuff that he's directed, like Fractured and The Call. I found some value in those. So he's just, he's one of those directors that if this was like 1970 and I was Andrew Saris, I'd be writing oodles and caboodles about auteur theory just to defend my love of his work. So I'm gonna take the living route here because I feel like we romanticized the past a lot. So living favorite horror director is easily gonna be James Wan. And I use that because, you know, we talk about the masters of horror. And when we do that, we talk about the directors like uh, Hooper and Craven and people have been doing this for much longer. And I just think it's important to recognize that we have new masters of horror. And I think there are a lot of other names that are growing to that level, but James Wan is the quickest to rise to that kind of transcendence and he's just been doing consistently over and over and over. You're like, you're waiting for him to slip up, but he's just the master of shadow play. He's made ghost movies scary again in a way and they haven't, that they haven't been in some time. And he's kind of just taken over as the master of our, of our generation. So I think that is just an important thing to note. And uh, he has won my respect over countless times. And I'll have to say one point in favor of James Wan too. Unlike the Masters of Horror of yesteryear, where they, you know, they were kind of pushed out of Hollywood by the time they were in their fifties, I feel like Wan could uh, could work a lot in his later career. I think he's got, you know, a good long career ahead of him still. Tremendous. I mean, he's got a DC credit already, so he's already broken the superhero barrier, I guess you can call it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. So uh, that brings us to question number two: favorite non-horror director. This is tough. This changes moment to moment, but in this moment, I'm gonna say Jeff Nichols. Um, 
Take Shelter and Mud are just painfully beautiful, beautiful movies. Uh, Shotgun Stories is great. Midnight Special, even Loving, I really liked. So yeah, there's there's a kind of quiet um, rural storytelling, you know, quiet lives, deep, rich emotions that I associate with Nichols' work. And, and he's somebody that I just go back to again and again and again. So now after I just picked James Wan and stayed modern for this uh, previous question, I'm going to romanticize the past and say I think Mel Brooks is my favorite director because directing comedy is, is not easy. And Mel Brooks directed countless comedies in a time that comedy was different and every one of them was just so unforgivably funny. I mean, I, I can pick up any Brooks comedy at any place and there will be a skit or a gag or something that will make me laugh over and over again, even though I've seen it over and over again. So I, I can't ignore that. There are many directors, and like you said, it's always changing. It's always changing for anyone right. that loves movies. We're always, you know, in love with something else at a different moment. But I don't know, for me, Mel Brooks is just always gonna be one of those loves. You know, I didn't know that you loved Mel Brooks, but that makes a whole lot of sense. Like all of your taste in horror is sort of locking into place for me right now. The comedy stuff, I told you. I, I've always been a comedy kid growing up, and that's how, that was my introduction to horror in a way, and the Japanese horror that was schlockier and goofier, and yeah, comedy uh, Mel Brooks style, that's just, it's the peak. You don't get better than that. I love it. Well, it was a longer break, but I think it was definitely worth it. Let's get back to the show. All right, so the episode this week is the Poughkeepsie Tapes. It is a 2007, you know, the websites say mockumentary. Uh, I, I don't know if I agree with the mock element of that, but let's say like faux documentary horror film. Um, it is written, uh, directed, produced, collaborated on by the Dowdle Brothers, who are best known for films like As Above, So Below and Devil. And it is, it is sort of a recreation of what you would think of as like a sensationalized early 2000s uh, like serial killer special on what would eventually become true TV. It has talking heads with police officers. It has talking heads with physicians. It explores a serial killer who was operating in the Poughkeepsie area. Um, and the hook of this particular film is when they finally caught the guy, when they finally were able to figure out who it was, they found a collection of tapes, hundreds of tapes that he had left behind um, with different kills that he'd done, with different circumstances he'd been in. And the film itself, Poughkeepsie Tapes, the movie, uh, is sort of a hybrid of these, this uh, found footage, first person stock and kill sequences with the larger narrative about this person and how the police officers and stuff found him. Um, we're going to talk about all of that in a little bit more detail because there's a lot there to tease out. Uh, but I do want to note that this is this is something of a curio and has been something of a curio for horror fans for a while because it was released in 2007. It came out at the Trebek Film Festival and the next year had a very limited VOD release, but it went kind of into MGM's vault. MGM had uh, acquired the rights to this film and in 2007, they were building up for like this big wide release that was going to go to a bunch of, you know, play in every movie theater across the country. And then they put it on the shelf and it stayed on the shelf pretty much for a decade until it finally got a home video release uh, from Scream Factory in 2017. So because of that, this film has developed a little bit of an aura, a little bit of a reputation and horror fans 
you know, you, they, they talk about the Poughkeepsie tapes in a little bit of hushed tones because for years and years and years, it was something that you had either seen or you'd heard about, but could never actually watch. Um, so cool, Phil, cool, cool setting for us to sort of talk about um, how the core community and what we think about it in particular. But as always, Ari, I want to start with you and I want to ask you uh, why you selected this one. What was it about this movie when we said kind of gave you the criteria five or less? You said, this is the movie that I got to bring on the show. This is the one I want to talk about. So uh, Donato's aware of this. I don't know if you are, Monogal, but um, I love found footage horror and I love it like unironically, unabashedly. I've watched a ton. I have a, a letterbox list and it's like over a hundred found footage horror movies that I've watched over the years that, and, and it ranges from like, you know, obviously the classics, there's like the, the Blair Witches and the Cloverfields and and then there's, you know, some lesser known ones that I won't name because the, my reviews are pretty bad on, on Letterbox for those. But um, they're easy to make. And, and it's, they're, okay, in theory, they're easy to make because they tend to cost less money than regular studio films. But I was actually talking to a writer friend um, recently, and she was like, they're actually super fucking hard to make because you have to capture kind of this like realistic sense for it to be good meaning people have to act like they're not acting. They need to act naturally. They have to react naturally. Um, you know, the the decisions that characters make have to feel natural. And this movie is a little bit different because it is kind of, it's laid out. And like you said, it's kind of like one of those, um, you know, docu-series, crime series that you would see back in the day on, I guess maybe like, I don't even know, like Discovery or TLC back in the day. But yeah, they have their own, they are, their own channels now. It's like ID and things like that. So it's kind of twofold. Like I'm really fascinated with true crime. Um, one of my favorite movies in the world is Zodiac, David Fincher's Zodiac. It's a wonderful, perfect, amazing, super long movie that I will happily watch for hours and hours on end. Um, so I'm really, I've always been really into that. But then again, the found footage thing, this is, this marries those two things in a way that I think really kind of like touches on something a little bit. Um, I don't know, like, I guess like a, like a taste that I have that I've had for such a long time. It kind of like, this sounds really bad, but it touches on like kind of childhood memories I have of watching these, these, uh, you know, serial killer documentaries or like unsolved mysteries or something as a kid. Cause that also was something that I watched to get my horror fix when for a bit, for a bit, I actually wasn't allowed to watch horror because my family got very, very into church. And so for a few years I had to always sneak any horror things that I wanted to watch, including like Buffy or, you know, I couldn't watch a lot of this stuff in the open. So I'd watch a lot of unsolved mysteries and beyond belief and, America's Most Wanted and stuff like that. So yeah, this kind of just hit that, hit all that. And I did have another, another choice um, in mind, but ultimately went with this one because um, I found out Donato hadn't seen it. And so the idea of share, this is, this actually goes into a lot of like how I feel about this movie and, and a couple of movies similar to it is the idea of like, like, you're right. This is kind of like a, for a little bit, it's like a little bit of a, like a mythical, you know, film in the horror community because it was like, supposed to come out i remember seeing this trailer um i think it was ahead of cloverfield actually when i saw cloverfield in theaters and my friend and i were really excited we we're like oh that looks scary as fuck the trailer's great um and then it just never came out and then we never knew what happened and so it kind of added to this mystery of like wait did this shit actually happen did it not get released because it's too violent was a studio sued and of course it's you know it's a faux documentary but at the time it kind of lent itself the mystery around the release lent itself to this whole I don't know the intrigue about 
okay, I need to see this movie. And the first time I saw it, I think I watched it like it was like a bootleg or something. Something it was like on YouTube, maybe I, I don't know, but it definitely wasn't an official release because it really didn't get anything official for a while outside of the festival circuit. And that was why I was so excited to watch this for the podcast specifically because 2007 predates when I really got involved in the horror genre and then eventually writing about it and all these things, because as much as you love found footage as love, as much as Mary Beth McAndrews loves found footage, I fucking love the genre. I love the subgenre of found footage specifically because there are three ways to do it, as you have mentioned, Ari. I would say that there are three rules, actually, that a good found footage film needs to follow. It has to feel genuine, as you said. It has to have a reason for the camera to be rolling. And also, it has to have a reason for someone to watch the tapes. Those are three things, I think, that all play into it. And there are so many good examples that understand these rules and understand that the best found footage finds a way to exist in a wholly honest, raw, and also visceral way. And also, as you said, the Poughkeepsie tapes disappeared for a little bit. So 2007, again, predates me and my obsession. And when I got obsessed, I couldn't find this movie anywhere. And that's all coming back to me now. As I was talking uh, to a friend about it afterwards, going like, why does this fit our criteria yet every horror fan knows the title the poughkeepsie tapes that's why in a way that's why because you couldn't find it anywhere because i tried for a long damn time to find it and the myth of this disgusting movie and maybe it couldn't be seen because you know it just couldn't be released to the public and all these things like that built it up for me so the fact that you know we could have a podcast episode about it Oh man, I was all in on that. Well, let me ask both of you. I, I want to um, kind of approach this a little bit in re- reverse. Even setting aside the film itself, this is a bit of an interesting pick for us because we don't normally get to talk about filmmakers that go on and do a lot of high profile stuff. Sort of the nature of the beast for Certified Forgotten is that we're dealing a lot with very independent or very international horror films. And those filmmakers on the international scene, they don't always make their way into the United States. They don't always work for Hollywood and continue to make horror so the fun thing, the funny thing about this is that, you know, the Doddles have made so much horror since this. Um, and they made what I think is one of the best television shows in the last 10 years, which is Waco. Fucking love that show so much. Um, what, you know, was it an interesting experience for, for both of you to have seen the other stuff and get to know these filmmakers before you saw their like first most notorious feature? You know, did you have a sense of whether you liked them based on Devil or As Above, So Below? Um, I, I will say I actually saw this movie before I saw okay. either of those. Um, so I knew the na- their names to the point that I was happy to see them on a movie that actually got released in, in theaters. You know, like, and I and I like both Devil and As Above, So Below, probably the latter a little bit more. Um, so I, I, if anything, I was just glad. I was like, oh, good. These guys, the guys who did Poughkeepsie tapes, like had a chance to actually do something else in the genre that actually got released. Good for them. Yeah, for me, what sparked interest alone in the Poughkeepsie tapes was that movie was quote unquote good enough to get them quarantine. I mean, we're forgetting that quarantine was the first big budget film that they did. So Mm -hmm. the Poughkeepsie tapes was as effective and accomplished, we'll say, a found footage horror film that it gave them the opportunity to remake REC, which to me is the pinnacle of found footage cinema. So in my mind, I'm like, holy shit, like the Poughkeepsie tapes 
showed the studio enough to be like, yeah, no, you get to do quarantine. You get to you get to take this and you're doing a mainstream film a year after. So like 2007 was Poughkeepsie and I believe 2008, possibly 2009 at the latest was quarantine. So for me to go backwards and to get the context and understand, yeah, I get, I get why they were given the reins on quarantine almost immediately. It, it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, no, I, de- I definitely think like handing quarantine to um, filmmakers who who had exhibited just su- that skill with with the sub- subgenre, and that's I mean that's even given because Poughkeepsie Tapes is not necessarily a straight found footage movie the way that you know quarantine is, but um, yeah, I agree with you. I can't. I, I never really thought of it that way. Well, let's talk about this one then. Let's talk about the Poughkeepsie Tapes. Um, you know, you Donato and I have had a chance to watch it this week. This is a first time watch for us. I am not as much of a found footage fan as as either of you. Um, not a, not opposed to it, but I don't seek out that subgenre in quite the same way that y'all do. So I'm kind of curious, um, you know, those initial impressions of the film from both of you as like huge found footage people. You know, when you sat down and watched this for the first time, Ari, a few years ago for you, Donata, just this past week. You know, like how did how did those how how did those those tapes, the Poughkeepsie tapes in the Poughkeepsie tapes, how did you react to those? Um, because there's, they're, they're gnarly, man. There's just no other way to put it. They're kind of gnarly. Yeah. Um, so when I actually watched the film, it, it's been some time now since I watched it for the first time. And then I, again, I rewatched it this week, but um, I remember leaving the theater thinking, Oh, I wish they could have dropped the framing of the, you know, the docu series or, or whatever, because I thought the acting during that was just like, very hokey and a little bit it's a little over the top it was like that felt a little mockumentary e at times but it's bizarre the juxtaposition between that and then just like the really raw disturbing just unabashedly awful nature of the tapes themselves i just remember being very struck with that and i and i had the same thought process this week as i was watching it i was like man i don't remember some of these like talking head moments being so like cringy (laughs) like some of the delivery and then i would start thinking like oh i guess i'm gonna i guess i gotta go back on letterbox and like take my rating down a bit and this is a movie that like i've always given like a three and a half or so um out of five and and then like somehow by the time we get to the end i'm back to that three and a half and i'm like you know what like okay for all of those parts the tapes themselves and then the the final you know moments with one of the victims that we'll we'll talk about i'm sure um it just is so effective that it kind of it's one of the few movies that like i feel very very um strongly in opposed ways about both halves of the films like i love the found footage part i don't love the talking head part but it's one of those movies where like I can feel that and both and the found footage stuff just is so well executed in what it sets out to do, which is disturb you that I just can't, I can't help but forgive it for that. Yeah. And if we're talking just about the mockumentary stuff, uh, the talking heads that we are focusing on, I think they add a tremendous amount of stage setting. We'll say for, for the found footage where I, I know it's supposed to be introducing the found footage as police officers and, psychologists, anyone they have, medical professionals, they're talking about what they've seen on a quote-unquote real sense in a faux documentary. But the way that they do that, and then the way they launch into these perverse acts of a maniac killer that the first thing we see is him forcing a girl to pop a balloon. 
So immediately it starts on a fetish sense and it starts on this path, we'll say, and where it gets to the gruesome nature of some of these evidence videos where maybe a couple's murdered and one of the couple well let's let's just say outright what if the husband's head ends up in the partner's stomach i mean there's a lot of stuff that is so grotesque and disgusting but then you bounce back to the quote-unquote professionals who deal with this stuff every day and are still so stricken by it and are still so themselves upset and i yes it's cringy at points yes it's a little overacted and hammy but in the same respect, you go back and watch any hist- history channel documentary or any one of those true crime things. And I mean, yeah, real people aren't great actors. <laughs> like, I think for me, that's where it comes down to. I like, I feel the exact opposite of both of you. I loved, loved the framing device. And I was not a big fan of the tapes themselves. Uh, but part of that, I think for me is because I, you know, we're we're in the we're in the midst of of a cultural revolution when it comes to how we talk about police officers. Um, and the thing about each of the cops is like we've all watched so many of those you know docu series, true crime things where like the cops you could you kind of be like, do they are they do they respect the guy that did that? They're like they're talking about him, but there's like the language that they're using suggests that like they're kind of like, well, damn it, I don't agree with him, but I'm kind of impressed the way he did it. Like there is there is a very very precise vibe that the Doddles are able to create with all those talking heads of sort of like the, the people that have so emotionally distanced themselves from a thing that they, you know, you lose the sense of trauma that that comes with that. And not everybody has it. There's a few people that are still very much in that moment, but you know, that kind of element of the talking heads was really interesting to me. And I, the little touches, you know, like the logo, the way that the television actors are the, the television newscasters talk, the way that they do some of the, the cutting and the editing of those things. I like, I was sure that one or all of the people involved in the film had some kind of a background in local news because it just, it felt super, super authentic to me. It felt like a lot of the stuff in there felt like it could have been dropped in the middle of like halftime of a football game. They're like tonight, a killer, blah, 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 blah. blah. I was, it, it really, it sold me on the events of it in a way that was kind of pushed back upon by the explicit nature of the tapes themselves, which, you know, if you know my taste in horror, that's not the most shocking thing in the world that that that, that part didn't quite do it for me. Yeah, I think um, whenever you were mentioning how this felt like a little bit like um, it was not necessarily a send up, but it was like mirroring shows like this that maybe would air in the early aughts or something like that. Um, that actually made me made me feel a little more forgiving about the acting. And like you said, Donato, like, a lot of real, real folks, real psychologists, and I can speak to that, <laughs> don't really know how to like talk to the public in a way that sounds convincing all the time. Or, you know, that I think that that's part of me that wish like, okay, they could have got some people to maybe make it a little more realistic. Um, but maybe that is realistic to the to the theme of what it was going for. And again, it was something that I was able to forgive because and not that I just sit there and I enjoy watching, you know, some, you know, a husband's head being put in a wife's abdomen or what have you, but um, it, it definitely gave that um, kind of a palate cleanser between these clips, which are in and of themselves, they're all pretty short. They're, they're hard to watch. Even, even having seen this movie, maybe like five or six times now, 
they're they're still pretty effective for yeah, me. It's a little bit of the uh, sinister effect in the sense that you frame a movie for a long time and live in the real world, and whether that's a training scene where hopeful cops are forced to watch these videos and three as the 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 director says you know three three out of the people in this room are not going to last through these videos and you kind of scoff because you're like well what could you show them and then again the first video you see after that sentence is a head placed inside a woman's abdomen and like yeah that's Mm -hmm. that is fucked up you have to be okay with this kind of material and i think that leads into the desensitized desensitized nature of these kind of things because if you can't take it, you're not allowed in there. But also, so, I mean, here's the other thing I'll say, you know, as I've mentioned on the podcast, like my dad busted a serial killer. Like yep. that is, that is fact. My dad was a detective mm. and he worked with the FBI and he, he basically chased a serial killer that wasn't to the extent of the Water Street killer in the Poughkeepsie tapes. But I mean, there are similarities. My dad had to tra- uh, chase him across the country. My dad had to follow him and find body parts across the like across state lines and things like that so there is an effective amount of thought that goes into creating a killer and letting us in that mindset of how this person could commit these murders and how good they are at them and i don't think it ever is looking at this person making them a not a hero obviously i don't think anyone thinks it's a hero but there's never a moment where the film is impressed with him it's always horror to me, it's always the horror that this person exists in the world and this person is real. And we all want to believe that the Poughkeepsie tapes is fiction, but there's a lot of fact in here. And there's a lot of things that I read in my dad's book about him that kind of, yeah, no, no, this is fucked up. And I think that's why it's so good to me. It's good because I don't enjoy it, but it effectively scares me and it effectively conveys the worst of the worst of human nature. And I have to give it credit for that. No, no film has ever been better suited by the film critics that are here to talk about it than the Poughkeepsie tapes with the two of you. Like, I feel like between the two of you, you have just such a wealth of experience with horror and with some of the true crime stuff that they're talking about that you can, you can contextualize this in a way that very, very few critics can. I mean, when they're talking about, I'll just be really quick with it, but they're talking about the one scene where uh, they're the placement of body parts and how strategic it is and how one is, hundreds of miles or not maybe not hundreds but you know miles away from the other and everything is meticulous everything is planned and you know that seems sick and crazy in the film and it is it's sick and crazy but then again in the true life case that like my dad is a part of uh the killer made children help him get rid of mommy and put her in rugs and take her somewhere where she's never found again until the cops find her body on the side of the road and it's like you want to talk about fucked up shit? Just go read some true crime. I mean, it's true crime for a reason. And a lot of these films base themselves off true crime. We want to believe that it's so, uh, you know, imaginative in these kind of vile stances where, yeah, the killer knew that the gas station was abandoned and that it was in the area that was all wooded and no one would ever see him. That's the kind of thought that goes into this. And again, it's just the craziness that goes into these kind of plots and, it's conveyed really well in this. And I don't, again, say that in a way that is anywhere near impressed. It's just in the nature of like, man, so much thought went into creating a character for the killer. And a lot of these films don't often do that. They just try to make a mockumentary, quote unquote, that's basically snuff uh, with no reason. This is around the torture porn era too. So it's like, it easily could have gone 
the hostile saw route where again you don't care about the killer as much in some instances you care about the gore on screen i kind of thought that's what the poughkeepsie tapes was going to be i thought that's what the poughkeepsie tapes was going to bank on but instead it fleshed out a villain and it fleshed out a really fucking good one i completely agree with that well i I just want to say real quick in response to monogle or you know this idea of like um hearing police the you know maybe the fbi agents or the psychologists or examiners in talk about this killer in a way that it's almost like being impressed by how he did it. I think it's funny because the film actually does directly address that specifically. Um, I think it's the psychologist character. I think she's a psychologist, um, maybe a psychiatrist, but she says something to the effect of it's as if he wanted us to be impressed by the, like by like the, how intricate this was. And then the interviewer says, well, are you? And she says, no, after seeing what he did to, Cheryl Dempsey, I was disgusted or something like that. So I think I think it's funny that they do actually kind of give a verbal nod to that because it is something, and I speak from someone who, as someone who, I am in no way a forensics, you know, any training in forensics or anything. I have, I have one good friend who does uh, forensic work and she's been on a few podcasts about true crime and she particularly works with um, – sex offenders and with sexual crimes. And so she knows a whole lot about that. That's not my area. Um, and you do have to do some extra special training. It's just, it's just specialized training to be able to be good at something like this, working with law enforcement in doing, doing work like this. Um, but I will say that, you know, kind of just being any kind of, of helping professional, you get exposed to a lot of really horrible stuff. I mean, oftentimes I come home from, you know, a day, a day of clinical work, seeing patients, and I don't want to talk for a few hours. Like, I don't want to talk. I don't want to expend energy, emotional energy. I don't want to tell my husband, you know, let's have a chat about our days. I don't want to do that. I want to be quiet. I want to go just decompress. I want to think about other things, which is oddly enough how I felt coming and coming in because I had a clinical day to day coming into this conversation. Um, so it is a little odd that I, that I used the word decompress <laughs> earlier because this is obviously not so far removed from, uh, the experience of talking about uncomfortable things, which is kind of what I do every day in general. Mm-hmm. But, um, but there is something to be said for like how, how easy it is to get desensitized to stuff like this, um, from a professional standpoint and as horror fans. Um, and that's, that's, I think a really interesting point that, I think that's why I've always really been drawn to found footage because it almost feels at times when it's really well done, like it's something that you shouldn't be watching. It, it taps into like the voyeur in us and um, a film like this and a, a movie that came out a few years before this called um, Sandman. It's like S ampersand man. I don't know if you've seen that. I, I have not seen that one. No. Okay. So I own that one. I bought it on a whim from a, like a used video store, but um, basically it's about, this filmmaker who go, these filmmakers that go to like an underground, I guess it's, I don't know if it's like for film or if it's for BDSM in general, I think it's maybe like a BDSM convention and they go to a booth of a guy who has a series called Sandman and it's about voyeurism. And it's basically like each, each series is like four tapes or something. And it's of him following someone. The last tape is him killing them. And so you're led to believe like, Oh, this is like his, this is like a fetish or this is like a kink for him. Like it's something that gets him off um, pretending like he's killing these people. And then you find out, Oh, he actually might be killing them. And so they talk a lot about voyeurism in that movie, which I think is like really appropriate for found footage. But that's one of those things that's kind of like reminded me of um, this idea of like, when you watch something so horrific, 
it's like you want to share it with someone so you don't feel that weight on your own of having seen this really terrible. That's how I felt about um, uh, speaking of Serbian film. That's how I felt about that. After I saw that I had to like, I have one friend that I knew who would like be down for watching anything. And I was like, you need to watch this movie ASAP because I cannot be the only person I know who's seen this. So I think this taps into that um, uh, to both of you, but Monogal to your point about kind of that, um, not necessarily glorifying it, but I think it's the desensitization that happens really easily whether you're in a field that deals with a lot of violence or a lot of disturbing content or horror fans who just watch a lot of horrific shit all the time. Well, let me, let me ask this then, because I think um, you, you raised a couple of really good points there. You know, when you watch this movie um, for those listening, the tapes themselves, they're, they're, there is a character, Cheryl Dempsey, who is very much so a kind of like Stockholm abused victim type character. There's explicit murder. There's a lot of stalking and hunting and killing, um, a lot of which is done, say, graphically. It's They don't really have a budget for that kind of stuff. They shoot it as if it's no budget. So uh, it, it it is basically it, it is the most gruesome found footage first film that you'll ever see. Um, but there is like there's a lot of stuff in there that that has earned it the reputation of being ultraviolet. Are you talked about like that? the cop stuff. And, you know, I think you mentioned, um, the, the, uh, um, Zodiac earlier and, you know, the idea that so much of our true crime fiction, film, television sort of, you know, creates this cat and mouse game between killer and detective. And that kind of becomes centralized to the story. That's sort of the appeal of those, you know, both of you have talked about the, the kind of the explicit nature of the Poughkeepsie tapes within the Poughkeepsie tapes. And, you know, Donato specifically, you called out like the relationship, the time period that it was kind of on the heels of the heyday of um, torture porn. So I ask all of this as a question is, as you're watching this movie, there's decisions that are being made by the Doddles and, and how they're depicting this stuff. You know, we're always as film critics reminding folks that depiction is not endorsement. And with the horror genre, that line gets really blurry really quickly. So I'm kind of curious, do you think that this is do you think there's a commentary here? Do you think that they're talking about our relationship to horror? Do you think they're talking about our relationship to true crime? Or do you think it's more exploitative? Do you think that they're just taking the kind of like elements of those and using those to create entertainment for an audience on a shoestring budget as early filmmakers? Where do you kind of fall on kind of the graphic nature of those tapes and, and where they might fit into that narrative? Yeah, I guess um, I can chime in a little bit on this just because it reminds me of one thing. Um, so I, so this is an anecdote before that'll indirectly answer this, but I have a friend that I tried to show another found footage movie to once who is also, um, she's now she's now a licensed psychologist, but um, but it was the movie The Den, which is a found footage, like a screen-based movie that came out, I don't, I don't even remember, 2013 maybe. I, I love it. It's one of my favorite found footage films. But it, it kind of in the, early in the movie, it shows a woman getting, or what looks like a younger girl getting killed on a computer screen in in a video being shown to another woman. And she was like, I can't, I can't watch this. I just can't watch this. And I, I haven't shown a film to someone who has made me turn it off maybe in 15 years. It's been a really long time. And this isn't a movie that I think is particularly graphic compared to some of the other stuff I could have shown. But um, we had to talk about it afterwards. And she was like, you know, I, her research is work, works within violence against women um, in developing countries. And so for her, this was just kind of tapping into something that she already kind of lives with all the time. Um, and as a woman is very um, sensitive to. And I had to kind of like think about that. <laughs> you know, like I love this movie and I watch this and it's entertainment to me. And 
I showed it to this person and could have very well like triggered something terrible, you know, as far as like trauma. Um, but she was luckily really, you know, she was chill about it and we had a good conversation. We're still friends. She didn't, she didn't run for the Hills, but, um, yeah, that was, that reminded me, it reminded me a little bit of that because I think, um, for me, it's always been really easy to give filmmakers the benefit of the doubt. And I, I don't, I don't like accusing people of being like exploitative, so to speak with any kind of, with violence, with sex, with, um, you know, telling any kind of story, if it just doesn't seem flagrant, if it seems like it makes sense in the context of the story that's trying to be told. So I I don't watch this movie and think that, and I like the idea of, it, it feels, you know, it feels like it makes more sense as a commentary, especially when it was, when it was recorded and when it came out um, as a commentary on kind of like our fixation with more and more, like we need to see more. We need to see more to the extent that, okay, now we have to see real murder to get off, to get scared. You know, the saw is not cutting it. The hostel is not cutting it. Let's see something that we believe is real. And so I could see that being a commentary. And I could also see someone like my friend who just doesn't want to see women be tortured and murdered, which by and large, the victims in this movie are women. And the lead, you know, the lead victim is, you know, it was a woman. So I could see that side of it. And I would never argue against someone who's, who calls it exploitative. Um, but for me, being someone who's watched the genre and, and found footage at that, I do think it has more to say than just look at this grossness for grossness sake, look at this disturbing shit for being disturbing sake. Um, but I wholly understand if someone disagrees with that and feels like it is exploitative and feels offended by it. I mean, yeah, it's just how we can interpret things differently film to film, you know, how I can love Promising Young Woman, for example, and then read a piece again written by Mary Beth just because it was published today on Ebert but I can read how she reacted negatively to the film because of the way it depicts everything in that film and she has connections to those traumas and those feelings so it, both are incredibly valid because we can all read films in different ways I will say for the Poughkeepsie tapes speaking specifically to the execution and the choices that the uh, Dowls make I think it's super effective. And I think it's super effective because it immediately sets up the heinous nature of the proceedings and everything that's going to come. You know, the first introductions to the killer are all the bodies that we know were discovered in his backyard and the tapes. And we know everything's being set up for something vile. And then the first instance of killing we see where we actually see one of his evidence tapes and we see it's of a little girl. That's like scene number single digits. We're still in the opening of this film. And the first thing you're going to lead us in with is that the Water Street killer sparked his serial killing spree with a child who is then probably raped. It's a fucking lot to take in. But then they start manipulating the cops. Then they start doing all these little details and all these additives where I think the film becomes a harsher criticism on the police system than it is any kind of just basic found footage uh, true crime spinoff because we know the details that happen. I mean, we're in the spoiler territory of this podcast and we know that the killer is able to kill in one way then shift his mo to prostitutes and use that as a cover to frame somebody else 
that the cops immediately accept as the killer because it places this other mark as, hey, everything makes sense. Yep, he's the killer. That guy gets put on death row. And then we get to the part where, oh, yeah, this movie's still got like 20, 25 minutes left. That shouldn't work as well as it does in the Poughkeepsie tapes. And yet it gets grosser and more horrifying and more tragic past these moments. Because you think the pinnacle is when he's mutilated these bodies and taken this girl hostage. And again, the Stockholm Syndrome stuff. He's making her a slave. Also, he's wearing a plague doctor mask from like theatrical dramas mm-hmm. centuries ago. And Commedia dell'arte, yeah. Yes, the Commedia dell'arte, exactly. So you're drawing on all of these old art forms and it's theater to him. It's, it's a performance. This is a deranged person. And when any other movie would have stopped, there's still like 25 minutes left. And it's commentary again on the cops themselves and how even they're like, we fucked all this up. Like there are multiple lines in the movie where I'm not, this is not me apologizing for them or, you know, giving them a one-off, but I think it's how easily even the police force can get fooled and how easily someone can fool them. I think there's a much bigger commentary in that assertion alone than there is just in, oh, look at how crazy this killer is. I think there's so, Ari, as you said, there's so much more to this film than just the typical throwaway torture porn, even torture porn found footage of the time because those exist. Like I, this is not mm-hmm. quote unquote new. I mean, there are plenty of torture porn found footage spinoffs that came out in this time where they are just, here's a guy with a camera. He brutalizes some people. Isn't that scary? Well, not really because it's just torture porn for death's sake. But now when you talk about the Poughkeepsie tapes, where there's motive, there's reason, there's a master plan. That's where it gets truly scary. I will say, I wish in a different context, we could spend an entire hour and talk just about the, the Dex Machina that 9-11 plays in this movie. Because oh my God. Yes. Did not, that, like, that, did not see that coming. I still don't quite understand why. Yeah, I thought that, I thought that was part of the, like, honestly, I, I expected to read reviews and hear that like MGM was like, yeah, you either cut the 9-11 stuff or we don't distribute it. And they were like, we're not cutting it. But there, there are, there are just, there's a lot of, choices and i hope you can hear the capital c in that there's a lot of choices in this movie um i actually do find a lot of them interesting but um there's a lot of them yeah i agree that that was actually something i was going to bring up and i was like oh do we even have time to touch that because that is such a that's a that's a podcast episode on its own <laughs> for especially the way the way it's delivered more than once <laughs> it just kind of comes across in a very strange way um but kind of back to Donato's point that i think to tie that that part of the conversation up the crazy thing about some of these things that these well a lot of the things that that uh, the themes that are brought up in the movie with respect to how law enforcement handles stuff like this it's not new um the, this is stuff like these are issues that police were dealing with and this is independent of the time like whenever zodiac the, the zodiac killer was you know on the loose where you know there were different killings in different counties where that didn't communicate with one another. And by the time you do communicate, it's kind of too late to really do much about it. You don't have much, you know, useful evidence to go off of. Um, that's something that happens in this movie. And I think that the way it takes these very real things that have happened with real cases with serial killers in real life is really interesting because it because it's the commentary is still relevant. And I think that speaks a lot to I mean, how law enforcement is, you know, jurisdictions and the limitations of some of these, um, the ways that we handle legal proceedings, especially with respect to 
you know, crossing this line. Okay, that's your victim. This is our victim. Like, how can you go about working together or not? Um, and so I, th- I do, I do really like that aspect of this movie too, as much as I don't love the um, execution of those talking head moments. Yeah, I think in those nine uh, eleven confessional moments is when we really feel the talking heads at their worst, as we've been talking about when uh, it's a little <laughs> hammier and maybe not as well delivered as we would hope, but the actual logic behind it, uh, it makes sense in the narrative. It, I, I, it does work. I saw it coming because they say the date, you know, they say the September one what date before it. And I'm like, oh God, are they going to seriously? Oh, fuck, they did. Yep. Chekhov's Chiron. All right. So last question then before we wrap up, you know, normally we kind of talk about a film missing its mark or being undiscovered. Poughkeepsie Tapes will always probably be the closest to a non-certified forgotten film that we ever talk about on certified forgotten, because there is a slightly different universe in which this got the paranormal activity treatment and played in 3000 cinemas across the United States. It didn't, it hasn't. Um, and now it's kind of starting over a little bit from scratch, albeit with a little bit of its own mythology and word of mouth behind it. So, you know, having seen this, having shared this, um, knowing where this fits into the found footage canon, do you see this as a film that in a couple of years is going to be regarded as that top 10 found footage of its era, like important movie? Do you see this as more of a curio because of the kind of like the, the delays and the meta narrative that took place around it? Like where does this flush out in the horror canon and the found footage canon for either of you? And Ari, I'd love you to start. I've been really surprised recently by how some, you know, older media that was either forgotten or dropped or got like revived by some weird fan you know, crusade has have come back up and that this is across, you know, media, like with music or film. Um, So it's, it's hard, it's hard to say right now, I think in the horror genre and for fans of, of found footage, this movie is actually pretty, it's pretty talked about. Um, It has been for so long. And um, so I, so I think it's, I think it's viewed as one of those films where people say, oh, you like found footage? Oh, you want to you want to find the most like shocking one or the most uncomfortable one? You should probably find Poughkeepsie Tapes or watch Poughkeepsie Tapes. So I could see it already being that. But I do think there's a lot more to the film that is not talked about. And some of that is some of the stuff that was brought up today. But there are some themes there that I think are still relevant right now and maybe worth talking about. And especially because the internet has made access to different forms of violence and um, kind of like made voyeurism a whole different, it's like taken it up a notch even more. And so I think there's some relevance to this, to this movie and and movies like this um, today that I hope people revisit it. Maybe with that in mind, I'd love to see like kind of an academic paper or something written on this. Cause I do think for it being, you know, for it maybe on the surface, just being like a gross found footage movie with some, like Matt says, like Donato says, hammy, you know, talking head action. Uh, there definitely is some are some relevant themes here that I think are super relevant still today. They were relevant then, and again, I even some of them I weren't, I didn't even recognize were as relevant as they were then. So, I mean, I hope people keep discovering it. The Scream Scream Factory, you know, did the Blu-ray, I believe, and which that shocked me that they would even pick that up, but um. Yeah, I guess like it just speaks to the the impact and the kind of the the lore of this of this film. And so yeah, I mean I, I for the sake of found footage at least, I hope that more people get to watch this because I do think this is a fascinating movie. 
Yeah, I think for as a case study for Certify Forgotten and how we approach this question at the end of every episode, this is such an anomaly because it, it got a Tribeca placement. Uh, it had the quote-unquote release, and it's been canonized by found footage horror fans as one you have to watch, whether you're going to love it or hate it. It has a reputation for a reason, and if you mention the Poughkeepsie tapes around pretty much any horror circle, I mean, everyone's going to know about it. It's not something that's quote-unquote forgotten, and yet so many people have not seen it because it just disappeared off the face of the earth. And we talk about, usually, part of this question is, well, how does it get rediscovered? And a big answer is, well, something like a Vinegar Syndrome or Scream Factory puts out a Blu-ray of it. Or it hits streaming. And guess what? Both of those things have happened for the Poughkeepsie Dapes. So I think the discovery process, especially now that it's on Amazon Prime, I don't know how long it's been there. But I mean, I tweeted about it tonight just saying like, yo, I'm watching this movie for the new episode. Let's get at it. And immediately people are like, wait, shit, like you guys are doing an episode on it. Somebody else just did a podcast episode on it. I should watch this movie probably already. Like I I should watch it now that it's available. So I think there's every chance that it's going to be discussed more frequently and a lot of people are going to go back and rediscover it because a lot of things might have even played against it when it came out in 2007 in the sense of mainstream critics didn't want anything to do with torture porn and guess what this isn't torture porn but it had all the makings to be one if marketing wasn't done super well so why doesn't it have more than five reviews on Rotten Tomatoes? I think that's pretty much the sell right there. Critics were just like, I don't need another one of these disgusting ass horror movies where people just die for nonsense reasons. And there you go. It gets no reviews. It goes away forever. And it's quote unquote forgotten, except it never is. So I, yeah, I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> yeah, I don't have anything to add. Normally, you know, I'd, I'd weigh in here, but I think both of you kind of killed it it's it's an oddity it's a an oddity for independent film it's an oddity for horror film for found footage for successful film it's just there there isn't there isn't anything like it for a lot of different reasons and so um you know that for that reason alone probably you should go seek it out all right well that that is that well that's scratching the surface of the poughkeepsie tape you know honestly we could have talked about that for a lot longer but um that hopefully will give you a flavor for the film and let you know what you're up against if you decide to watch it. So I, you know, we want to say thank you first of all to Ari for joining us. It, this I feel like I've said this a couple of times. I think I pretty much I think this time I really mean it. This might have been my favorite episode just to get the kind of insight that that you could offer um, both clinically and from your own background as a horror fan. I found that absolutely fucking fascinating. No, thank you. I appreciate that. The yeah, of course. If there are other horror fans out there that want to follow you, want to get more of, you know, kind of your, your unique blend of perspective on the genre, like where, where should they go? Where is the best place to, to follow you on social media to maybe read fiction? If you're comfortable publishing it at some point, where should they check you out? Yeah. So um, you can get, you find me on any of the social, the main ones I'm on um, Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, and it's the T H E R E A R I drew d-r-e-w so the r-e drew um chat with me about found footage or about this movie around about horror in general about pop music cryptids you know politics whatever i'm happy to chat with folks and uh connect with more people who love horror donato what are you up to buddy tell the people oh you know i'm up to all the things we don't we don't need to get into specifics we can just say follow at donato bomb on twitter letterboxd and instagram you can find my authory page that will be up to date with all my writings if you would like to follow me there or just, you know, wait until I tweet it out and then be like, yo, this is cool. 
up to you. Well, as for myself, you can follow me on Twitter. It's Labsplice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. I have an author page, but I don't remember my handle. It's in my Twitter bio. You can check it out if you need to. And as always, we would encourage you to listen to other episodes, to leave a review on whatever your podcast platform is, and to check out www.certifiedforgotten.com. We're publishing two articles a week from a wide variety of horror fans, and they are bringing some perspectives that I'm just I, I'm just sitting back and, and, and enjoying. It's really easy to edit a website when everybody brings their A-game like they do. So please check it out. That's certifiedforgotten.com. Um, Ari, you know, we'll, we'll have to bring you back for another episode in the future. I'm really curious about that other film you were talking about. So, you know, between you and Mary Beth, you guys might have the corner, the market cornered for found footage in the future. I love that. Yeah. I'm happy to be in good company and I'm, I would love to come back someday. So feel free, feel free to hit me up whenever. All right. Donato, take us off, please. The Poughkeepsie wind. <laughs> That's weird. 